Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net, as always. Hi, John, how are you doing? I'm great. Hello, everyone. And John knows the topic of this episode, but nothing else. And that's because I don't have anything else planned. Um, normally, I have a mind map or a list or something to keep me on track. And this week, we're just going to wing it. So let's see what happens. I don't have anything prepared either. <laughs> we're doomed. <laughs> but listen, it's really easy because this week's topic is live sound, uh, as in mastering audio of live recordings, gigs, you know. Uh, and it's really simple. Mastering live audio is exactly the same as mastering any other kind of audio. So just go back and listen to the last 28 episodes and we're done. <laughs> so my name's Ian Shepard. Thanks for listening. No, um, <laughs> I, I did. I mean, I thought this would be a topic that people would be interested in. Um, and then I thought, but what are we going to talk about? Because seriously, mastering, you know, I mean, it's, it's just audio, right? But of course, the reality is that most of what we work on is studio recordings and people have spent months, weeks, years recording this stuff and getting the best possible results and the best possible mix and all the rest of it. And that is not typically what happens in a live recording. Um, I mean, I guess... Let's start with some of the problems that you would have with a live recording, like a well, concert recording. Were you thinking rock band or like orchestral? I'm mainly thinking rock and pop, but we could do orchestral and stuff as well. Um, okay. Yeah, my, so my idea for the episode is that basically you are going to come up with as many problems that you can think of that might happen in a live recording and throw them at me. And I'm going to try and come up with a way to solve them in, <laughs> okay. ma in mastering. Um, but before we do, the, the one that can, I think the most significant, the most important one is they're done on stage. Uh, as opposed to in a recording studio, even if a recording studio is somebody's living room or, you know, uh, log cabin in their garden, whatever it is, it's a controlled environment where we figure out we have plenty of time to experiment, get the best possible results. If you go to a top flight studio, you certainly hope that the engineers and the techs there are going to be able to get that those great results for you. Um, so you have something that's very, very controlled, and then you spend hours mixing and post-producing and cleaning up and doing all the rest of it to get the best possible results you can. Whereas a live recording is in whatever room or on whatever stage it happens to be, uh, the, the gig took place. And it's one and take that, and it's done. It's one take and it's done. Well, I mean, I guess, okay, so let's talk about the ideal live recording. If you're kind of uh, some major artist, you know, there's a good possibility that actually they're recording every night of your show. And they might be recording it to multi-track. So you can pick and choose between venues and you can get the best performances, you can edit between them, and you probably have as many mics as you can possibly have. That kind of approaches the ideal. What I would say is that even when you have an artist where money is no object and all the rest of it, you can get results that don't work. Um, the one that springs to mind to me is Prince. His Sign of the Times uh, film of a live performance is kind of widely known as one of the great live concert films in history. I didn't realize until recently that a lot of it was overdubbed 
Um, <laughs> and actually, or no, in fact, it wasn't overdubbed. They reshot the film. What they did is the, the, there weren't sufficient lights on stage when they recorded the actual show, which was in Holland somewhere, I think. Um, so they went back to Paisley Park, set up his whole stage rig again, and he and the band mimed to the live performances that came from the live gig. Then they cut in some other footage and then they did do overdubs and all the rest of it. So it's, I always used to watch that film and go, he can't possibly be that good. And the truth is he wasn't that good. I mean, he was really good, but he wasn't that good. But even so, I mean, that's a classic example. You would think, I mean, from what I've read, they had 48 tracks of recording on that concert and they still didn't have enough channels. Um, and there was, even with all of the overdubs and all the rest of it, the, the sound on that, I mean, it, it, it brilliantly captures the performance and the atmosphere and just you know the ideal prince gig which i think is what you want from a, a concert film but it's not still an ideal audio recording you know it's nothing like the standard of, of his albums so but that's at one end of the spectrum then you come back to the other end of the spectrum the kind of live recording that most of us work on and i would say quite often it's a stereo feed straight out of the mixing desk at the front of house to well used to be DAT machines, maybe now it's a CD recorder or probably an MP3 recorder, or hopefully, if you're lucky, it would be a lossless kind of recorder. It might be like a, a Zoom H6 connected into the board, and hopefully it's recorded in four channels, so there's actually you know, a stereo pair kind of out in the audience, and it's sort of blended, because the direct mics don't often have everything in them. They really don't. And actually, that reminds me, um, one of the most... One of the best jobs I did was ages ago, I mixed uh, a DVD of Culture Club, their 20th anniversary gig at the Royal Albert Hall, um, which is one of those occasions that you would think it would be the best it could possibly be. And it was it was pretty good, except that they completely failed to record the harmonica player, which is a fairly important part to two of their most famous songs. So we had to overdub that later, but that's another story. The, but there were no audience mics at all. I had, I think it was, 24 track recording um and yeah no audience mic so what i had to do was fake it by taking mics where nothing was happening i had automation running on the desk to pan those because it was a surround sound mix so i had automation panning that stuff into the rear channels to act as my audience mics in between songs um and then kind of editing out stuff that was going on so yeah you're absolutely right i bet most people listening to this if they've mixed or mastered a live recording have never had audience channels though that's the kind of thing you only think about if you're you know because the truth is most of these things somebody goes oh we should record this and you just plug yeah. in whatever cables you can find into whatever recording device you can find and it's basically a bootleg but done by the band <laughs> yeah it, it's a high right. quality bootleg exactly yeah and i think that is to me the most because you know the, the the other end of the spectrum where it's the best possible recording and it's edited together over all those shows and all the rest of it actually that's not that interesting as a topic for podcasts because it is then just mastering just like you would master anything else it's about getting the best possible results the, the fun bit of this topic for me is where you have something where all kinds of things have gone wrong so a classic example that just occurs to me is quite often live sound engineers don't mic up the bass sometimes they don't mic up the drums but quite often they don't mic up the bass because typically it's so loud on stage that they don't need to right. um and i've had a number of gigs to master in my time where the only bass in the recording is basically spill on the other mics um and that's a nightmare and we can talk about what i try to do with that in a minute but um anything spring to mind immediately for you john that you just see over and over again well i don't do a lot of uh live 
mixing or mastering, but the things that come up are usually like hiding mistakes is one thing. Mm -hmm. There's the noise often. And well, there could be like ground loops and things like that. Just dodgy electrical system in the, in the venue. Yep. Uh, there's, you know, cheers and, and stuff and the wrong times <laughs> during the songs. Really just balances. You don't often have a lot of control. There's usually a lot of vocal in the PA, but you might not have any drums in it. So it really depends on the gig, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me back to the the, the thing that I was going to say before I wandered off on some tangent, which was <laughs> that the it's not recorded in an ideal room. No. And that that involves all kinds, you know, I mean, number one problem is probably spill. Um, I mean, I should say that I'm actually quite a big fan of spill. I really like spill if it's reasonably under control, but quite often in a gig, it's not, you know, you could have a guitar stack right next to the drums. So the left-hand side of the drum overheads is covered in, because the close mics are not such a problem. If you've got a mic in front of a guitar cab or right in against a drum, chances are that's going to be the loudest thing on that channel and you're you're in a good place to start with. But yeah, th things that are slightly more ambient and especially vocal mics. I mean, the classic thing is usually the singer is standing right in front of the drum kit. So there's a ton of drums coming out on the vocal channel, which, you know, if you have access to the mix, you can gate it or you can automate it to reduce the effects of that. If in the situation where you've got, you know, a two-channel recording just coming straight off the mixing desk, you don't have that option, so you're trying to deal with it. And already, I'm starting to describe situations that, you, I mean, there's not a heck of a lot you can do about that in mastering. So I think maybe, no, I'm going to save that for the mastering maxim. Okay. You, you mentioned a, a not an ideal room. So you could have stereo mics where it's imbalanced. You, there's maybe like a bass buildup on the left channel. That's something you can tweak in mastering through uh, mid-side EQ or just unlinked stereo EQ, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's kind of going to be the theme, I think, for this episode is where we refer people to other shows to talk about things we've already talked about, because you're absolutely right. I mean, another common thing that you might use mid-side EQ for is just where you have very little stereo information at all. Um, especially in uh, larger venues, a lot of engineers will mix more or less in mono they might pan lead guitar to one side and rhythm guitar to the other or whatever but and the thinking behind that is just that there are going to be a ton of people who can only basically hear what's coming out of one of the speakers if you have two speaker stacks on either side of the stage um, so stereo in a venue doesn't make nearly as much sense as it does listening to it on headphones or through speakers yeah it's pretty rare to find any small to mid-sized club that it's actually running it's PA in stereo. Exactly. That's that's the other factor is just whether the PA even works in stereo. Most people put up stereo overheads. I think that's true. I used to do a fair bit of uh, live sound when I was back at college and we had a small PA there, but it was a decent rig. Um, and we would put the overheads into stereo if we could. Um, and, you know, maybe spread some backing vocals or just get a little bit of space in there. Um, mm -hmm. But if you don't have a lot of stereo information in the signal, a great thing to do at mastering can be to get in with the mid-side processing um, and just widen the image out. It would be really cool if I had a list of episodes so I could tell you what episode number to go to to listen to for that, but I can't. So you'll have to go to themasteringshow.com and look at the show notes where we'll include links to all of these. But that we did a, an episode 
all about stereo and we talk about mid-side processing in that so you can find out about that there another problem with the room is that you can have too much ambient sound floating around you have too much of the room coming back uh on some of the mics you can have feedback um which can usually be solved with eq or going in with something like isotope rx um Uh episode 28 the one before this one we talked about restoration you can use the the spectral repair to go in and and draw that out yeah feedback is often kind of like centered around one frequency and you may have they'll probably have harmonics along with it but that feedback is coming through a speaker so there's going to be its own kind of eq curve to that it's rare that the feedback is totally isolated but yeah you can definitely use spectral repair to take that out yeah i mean that's something that's new um you know i mean because spectral repair has only been easily accessible in the last sort of five or ten years so feedback used to be a nightmare and you could automate eq notches which would have a similar effect but usually didn't sound as good so it's really nice to be able to and you can do the same thing with i don't know people kicking mic stands or (laughs) dropping instruments or you know cables tapping against mics all of those kind of little effects can be removed and you could also use restoration techniques like decrackle and debuzz and dehiss to get rid of a load of those other kind of problems that you often find in live recordings so it's it's interesting that you know typically we talk about restoration and in the last episode we talked about it in the in the context of of rescuing old recordings it can be just as valuable rescuing new recordings that have come from a live venue um, what else might you use restoration for? Well, often you don't need anything that's below like, I don't know, 50 hertz. If there if there's ground loop, um, you can you can just like use the frequency selection tool and just select from like 59 to uh, 61 and just hit delete and it'll take that right out. Unless in your unless you're in Europe, in which case yeah. you go for forty nine to fifty one hertz, you can yeah. do those. I, I actually, I'm not a big fan of of kind of constant EQ settings across. I mean, if it's a phase linear EQ, you might get away with that because because you typically want a very tight notch. I'm not sure what RX actually does if you're making a selection and hit the delete key. Not not using not not processing with EQ, just hitting delete. I'm not sure what. Is it actually happening there? But whenever I've tried it, it's been really harsh. Um, so I actually like to use the denoise function for hum and buzz and, and all those kind of things. Not so much buzz. Mm-hmm. Depends what kind of buzz. There's buzz that is continuous tone, and then there's that really kind of clicky, gritty kind of buzz, which is often caused by lighting, stage yep. lighting. Yeah. Uh, a declicker or a decrackle is often a better way of getting rid of that. Um, but yeah, I like to go in with the with the noise reduction, and I tend to have the settings set so that it's almost just gating it. So actually, the hum or the buzz is probably still in there when there's instruments active at those frequencies, but you don't hear it because it's masked, and then it just takes it out in the gaps. I find you get less artifacts that way, and I'm just kind of more comfortable with that. But spectral repair can work as you know. There's a, basically if there's a noise that you can see in the in the analysis, you can probably at least reduce it using RX, if not fix it completely. The room might inherently kind of makes it make it like a kind of a boxy sound. You know, maybe it's acoustically treated and it sounds quite dead. Um, but mo- most likely, it's going to have really boomy low end. And I, it kind of all depends on if you have actual mics 
or if you just have the board mix, or if it's well mixed at all. But there's probably a lot of EQ stuff that you need to do. Yeah, thank you. You've reminded me of a couple of other things I was going to say. If you just have a board mix, probably the biggest challenge, I would say, is that that mix is tailored to sound good in the room. So as well as the fact that the room can color the sound, the room can color the mix. Just for example, let's say it's a very dead venue and there's a ton of people in there. The engineer might add a load more top to everything to try and get the sound more lively. Or maybe you have a speaker stack where the tweeters are blown or who knows, there's all kinds of reasons to do with the environment and the engineer shapes the mix. I mean, the same thing is the same reasoning applies if you didn't have any bass in the mix if the engineer the front of house engineer feels there's enough bass coming off stage without it going through the pa he's making a mix decision based on what he's hearing in the room that makes no sense when you take the mix anywhere else um, and that's one of the the biggest challenges and yeah you're right eq boomy bass is one of the big things because the bass tends to you know sing around the room and pick up the room nodes um, and then come back into the mics spill onto everything else um, you also kind of, you know, the kind of horrible, harsh, clangy reflections from the room in the upper mid-range. Quite a lot of live sound rigs. They're not going to have beautiful condenser microphones. It's going to be a lot of dynamic mics, probably with quite limited top end. Uh, engineer goes in with a possibly just a fixed frequency EQ boost on the desk to try and add some some top end to that. And, and you just end up with something that sounds kind of very harsh and very brittle in the high end. Um, yeah. And that's where, yeah, absolutely, EQ can can completely save something. You know, if, you, if you're lucky, if there are particular frequencies that are singing out, uh, you can just go in and use notches to fix it. If not, then maybe a dynamic EQ that only reduces those frequencies when they get out of control can help. People keep asking me about dynamic EQs and I've not used them that much, but I mentioned a few episodes ago that I really like the one that Nova. I've forgotten. Nova. Thank you. And I've been using it since you recommended it. Ah, how are you getting on? Um, using it quite a lot in this film that I'm mixing, editing and mixing. So uh, using it for DSing, I'm using it for uh, kind of like rumble control when there's a car driving by in an interview. Um, or a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it quite a bit. I think that the mouse wheel controls are reversed to what feels intuitive to me. So like when you're, you mouse over uh, to change the bandwidth, it seems like it's backwards compared to what I'm used to with uh, Reaper's plugins. You know, it, it's a very, very nice plugin to use. Sounds great. I was reminded of something. Oh, yes. In this film, there's a lot of concert footage, and I have a choice of different input or a mixes of the same thing often it's cameras and i might have a board mix and i might have like a stereo recorder i'm hardly using any of the board mixes just because it's so you know the kick is so clicky and bright but i'm using tons of the on-camera mics in it just because they sound more like what's what i'm seeing so that's i think really that's important. i mean yeah it's just a slight tangent from this topic, from, but, from mastering but well no i'm just because because quite often the the camera sound is terrible, you know? And yes. Your, your kind of classic mistake that people make when they're shooting their own videos is not to have a boom mic um, or not pay attention to miking up whatever it is, you know, just trust that the camera mic is going to... And, you know, you can get motor wear in there, you can get 
wind noise on the mic it can be too far away all kinds of things that are so it's it's, it's great that you've actually got usable camera audio yeah it is kind of funny that it actually worked one of the cameras had one of the inputs polarity inverted which was something i didn't notice of course until like 15 days into editing <laughs> i had to go back and find all the clips that use that and check them all in a phase scope once I figured that, I was like, that's why it sounded so weird. It's like the last thing you check, it's stereo. It's like, okay, why would it be polarity inverted? <laughs> Are you listening on speakers or headphones? Mix of both. Because that, it's one of the funny things when I set this room up, the phase inverted stuff just leaps out and slaps me in the face now. Um, it's kind of like, yeah. But it, it depends what you're listening to, um, as to, to how it grabs you. And I guess it, it's the bass frequencies that are a real clue. It can be tougher to spot in the upper mids and stuff, which is kind of probably with like dialogue and stuff, what you're hearing more of, so. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's the B-roll footage. Right. And it's just like the on-camera or the, the we're, we're getting off topic, definitely, <laughs> but yeah. The other thing that can happen because of the room, just to wrap up this little topic is, mm -hmm. Related to what I was saying about, you know, the kind of the clangy, nasty, reverberant sound of the room coming back, because most live venues, you would hope that classical music is an exception to this, but not always. Um, but certainly for pop and rock, you know, usually it's it's like a brick box and it could well be square and there could be all kinds of other problems with it. That means that often, more often than not, I would say live board mixes in particular tend to be very, very dry. It's pretty rare for any huge amount of reverb to be added into a mix. So another thing that you often get if you have a board mix that you're supposed to master is that it will sound very, very dead. So this is one of those very rare occasions where I might break out the reverb uh, at the mastering stage just to try and get some kind of life and space and energy back in. It can also be a help if you don't have a huge amount of stereo information, if you just want to get a little bit of kind of not having everything glued to the center of the of the stereo image. Um, and if you're going to try that, my top tip, well, I have two top tips. No, it's the same top tip, but there's two different <laughs> ways to use it, um, which is basically to filter it, right? So typically you don't want reverb on the kick or the bass. So a high pass filter on the reverb, either on the send or the return to get rid of all of that stuff. Um, you know, probably you could uh, put it as high as 100 or 200 hertz or even higher um, to make sure that none of that stuff goes through the reverb that's probably going to help i would recommend mm -hmm. you use a fairly soft roll off otherwise it can sound a bit unnatural and then or nova with the low shelf dynamic could be pretty cool too that's an interesting point yeah yeah i hadn't thought of that oh nice or you could do both but yeah but you i'm do doing both. stuff like that yeah Anyway. No, no, that's cool. Um, the, and then the other tip, which is the same tip, but is to use a high cut. Um, because again, if you already have clangy, nasty, high end in things, I mean, you might want to mask a little bit of that or soften it or extend it a bit with a nice sounding reverb, but often horrible things going through a reverb sound even more horrible and just last longer. <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> um, I mean, this is, a, this is something I do in mixing as well. I, it's the number of times I use a reverb without filtering out most of the high end. Um, I could count on the fingers of one hand. Again, it's always you, you want EQ a, your reverbs. Yeah, you want a gentle roll off, um, and you have to tune it by ear so that you get that balance right between 
the kind of nasty clangy metallic stuff and the the things that seem to add warmth and space but that can sometimes help and that could be another a way to deal with just the sound of the room that the the thing was recorded in we could transition this conversation a little more into the string quartet or orchestral sort of mastering uh i've done a little bit of that we could um well tell us about your experience with that it was some of the stuff was recorded at a, a uh, i guess it was a school university or something and it wasn't in an ideal room school halls are the worst yeah they just are (laughs) performances were good the basic processing was not too different from what i might do with any project a bit of multi-band compression bit of limiting those type of projects i actually use parallel compression just to kind of like make sure that the quiet parts are still audible because they're so dynamic so, and uh, I, and I just find that the parallel compression kind of adds a little more texture to it, something that's more used to hearing. Yeah, I tend to use automation rather than parallel compression, but it, it kind of has a similar result. Um, and I, I agree, bring, yes, uh, especially if it's, you know, quite often a recording in that case, will somebody will put up, could be quite a nice pair of mics, quite often a school will have a decent stereo pair. This was you know, a decatree. Okay, yeah, so that's yeah. going to, you know, that's going to give you a nice a nice image and a nice overall picture of what's going on. Um, but yeah, that kind of stuff sounds super dynamic. Um, and mm. actually, that's another topic that applies generally in live gigs. Quite often, the stuff is much more dynamic than you might get from a studio mix. So I think another suggestion when you're mastering live material, either classical or pop and rock, is to be prepared to really wade in with the with the compression. Compression in particular... Uh, you know, limiting is going to be less successful typically because you'll you'll be asking the limiter to do too much. So it'll either be doing nothing or everything will be hitting it so hard that it, the chances of it sounding great are not good. Whereas, yep. you know, kind of more compression than you might normally want and uh, probably with lower thresholds and maybe higher ratios, just generally more compression uh, is probably going to be beneficial for a live recording so yeah you kind of need to put some of the rules of thumb that you might have developed over the years or picked up from me to one side um and be prepared to do stuff that kind of looks a bit wrong on the meters but you know at the end of the day if it sounds right but the other thing is i do think uh automation should probably be a first stage you know so i mean a classic example would just be if you have well let's let's say an orchestra rather than a band but just the simple contrast between the very quiet sections and the very loud sections, um, especially with a symphony orchestra, the difference can be absolutely huge. Um, and it's a bit of a a myth that classical recordings are have no processing at all. They're often very kind of purist recordings, um, and they might not have EQ and things added, but often they have somebody riding the faders effectively, either literally or in post-production afterwards, just to naturally reduce the dynamics. And the nice thing is you can do very slow changes in level. Um, so let's say you bring the the quiet section up by, who knows, 10 dBs maybe, so that it, it doesn't kind of disappear off the, the radar when after the loud section. You could gradually ramp that down so that you can still get a nice big contrast when you hit a dynamic moment later on. Um, and, you know, the, the listener won't notice those slow changes. So that can really work. You need to do that because 
what sounds right uh, in the venue doesn't always sound right in a recording dynamically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a classic example of, you know, a, a microphone is not our ears. Um, I mentioned this on some other episode. That when we are in a venue, the our ears and our brains are all doing doing all kinds of clever stuff to effectively process what we hear to create an entirely different impression than you when you just stick a couple of microphones up. Yeah, and in a situation like that where it's it's a orchestra in a hall, the sound's coming from all around you because it's just so big. So uh, when you're just listening to it on speakers, it doesn't really translate. You don't you don't get that that kind of eerie silence you might get from having a hundred or a thousand people around you just listening intently. It's such a weird thing, right? It is. And it's it can be quite a magical thing. I mean, a, a really good live recording of a really good performance can be amazing. Um, but you're not going to have the dynamic range to listen to that exactly the same. No, ex- exactly. You need to do more to translate that into something that works as a, as a listening experience on a, in a hi-fi or a um, personal media player or whatever. Um, and again, with the classical... I think reverb is something that can definitely be considered at the mastering stage, um, uh-huh. either to try and mask the sound of a horrible room or to add some ambience to a very dead recording. Um, classic example of when you get a really dead recording is something that was done outside um, because, yeah, of course, when you're outside, the sound just disappears. None, none of the, or virtually none of the sound comes back. So you get no sense of space around things. Um, so in... I guess you could either say it's the best or worst possible acoustic, depending on your perspective. Um, but it really doesn't work with classical music. A lot of classical music, the recordings we listen to, are recorded in really luxuriant acoustics. You know, the the concert halls tend to have very long reverb times, and you get a lot of sound coming back from the the space around the musicians. The you know, classical recordings we listen to tend to be a lot more ambient than the pop and rock stuff. So. If you, but you don't get that in a school hall. You get early reflections and maybe a tiny little bit of reverb, uh, but nothing else. And I say school hall, but any kind of small venue, you know, a, a town hall. Um, Com- community center. Exactly. All the kinds of places yeah. that you're likely to record or get a recording from. Um, well, you know, it's a tough one. You have to be careful because you can run into problems of mixing, you know, your symphony concert hall kind of amazing reverb preset with the sound of a school hall having said mm-hmm. that with care if you blend it carefully and if you eq it and if you choose the right preset to start with and then tweak often you can and automate and automate yeah that's another good point yeah automating the reverb in and out that's something i do in mixing as well actually but um mm-hmm. particularly with a live recording if you're especially classical but also pop and rock yeah, that can be a really useful way of of making these things successful. And I think that's another general point to make is, and I actually really enjoy mastering live stuff because you can kind of get that much more creative. Um, I've just finished a project in the last couple of days. Uh, it's a fantastic album. I love it. It sounds amazing. It's kind of the ideal in terms of mastering because there's not that much to do, but the little bits that you can do make a huge difference. But in some senses, it's almost so hands-off that it's a little bit frustrating. Um, you know, the, the most fun projects often can be the ones where you have to do the most. So, you know, if you have a live recording where you're digging out the MSEQ and you're 
compressing it and you're automating it and you're adding a little bit of reverb and doing some restoration and all the rest of it, you know, it, it's a chance to really hone your skills. So, uh, yeah, don't be afraid to get stuck in would definitely be part of my advice. There's another topic. I don't know whether you may not have come across this, John. I quite often get asked to master live albums where different recordings have come from different venues or possibly even from different you know one of the toughest ones is a live recording over the years where you have 15 or 20 songs some of which could have been recorded in the 60s right through to the modern day um so you're not only mastering live recordings but you're trying to make all of those recordings sound satisfying as a listening whole and probably the ultimate example of that was i had to do a i think it was it wasn't kind of an appeal session. It must have been BBC live recordings of the band, uh, literally over a 20, 30-year period, I guess. And the the request was to make, edit them all together so it seemed like a continuous concert, which is a slightly bizarre concept since the lineup changed and the material was different and the recording technology changed and all the rest of it. But the thing that was really challenging about it was was the stuff in between, the audience recordings and we touched on it earlier you know one of the problems is you don't have it um back in the day one suggestion was you had a tape loop with an audience <laughs> on it and you literally just faded it in and out in between songs uh that can be of limited success especially when the tape loop in question has somebody really obviously blowing a wolf whistle that you then hear about once every 10 or 15 seconds um yeah but i'm not going to name any names as to who did that um but this is another thing that I actually really enjoy. I find it satisfying in a nerdy kind of way is creating convincing transitions between the tracks. So it's all about crossfade shapes and finding, you know, the kind of the right gap to move from. And in this project I'm thinking of, I literally went from a stadium with kind of 10,000 people in it to, I guess, a tiny little club with a few hundred people in it. And you kind of, you know, you just blended a th that kind of the sound of not very many people clapping and a few people who are really close to the mic going, woo, yeah. Editing that on top of this huge kind of 10,000 person crowd and getting the crowd to disappear in just such a way that you didn't really notice that the two things were completely unrealistic was really enjoyable. Have you ever done anything like that? I'm doing a bit of that in the in this film, just kind of blending in b-roll and stuff that or stuff that's i have access to the, like the original recordings from each of these uh concerts so there's lots of little bits of stuff between songs and i'm just kind of making up loops and putting in a few seconds at a time where it's just kind of quiet in the audience so do you enjoy it, do you, find like it that. do you find it tedious well it's certainly tedious but it's also interesting because i think i'm making the film better at the same time yeah it can be tedious listening to the same edit over and over and over again trying to improve it but but kind of when you finish and it works and it's really satisfying i really enjoy that and no one notices it <laughs> exactly yeah that's you, you do all of this work and it's completely invisible yeah the point of it is that it's invisible yeah yeah you've reminded me that's just popped back into my head you mentioned mistakes um and there's one particular classic mistake that i remember mainly because it was you would not think that Deep Purple would make a mistake when playing Smoke on the Water. Um, but they did in a live gig that I... I actually mixed it as well, but the... I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. I think they must have had... They had a really long intro to the song, and I'm guess I'm trying to remember. I, I guess it was drums that were playing, 
or maybe it was just a guitar riff going around and around. Anyway, you're waiting for the moment where it goes, no, no, no. Somebody got it completely wrong. And I'm trying, I think now I'm thinking about it. It must have been a guitar riff that was going, so it was a kind of noodly guitar solo that everybody knew was eventually going to get to the riff. Um, yeah. And the drummer got it wrong and came in in completely the wrong place. So there's this big kind of, and then it stops. So I had to find an edit where I could take that out without kind of interrupting the flow of the of the guitar noodling, um, so that it. And I debated whether to do that because it it was a it was one of those recordings. It was a whole show, so it had a date and it had been out as a bootleg before. So there would be people who either were at the gig or had heard the recording before who would know that this mistake had happened. But I just felt like it couldn't stay in because it's just so obviously wrong, and I had to edit it out. Something that's more common is. Well, for example, I went to see Peter Gabriel live five or six years ago, and he was playing Salisbury Hill, and it was the it was the tour where he had the round stage, and during Salisbury Hill he was on a bike, so he was riding around the outside of the stage on the bike singing, and something obviously happened on stage that made him completely miss his place. Then there was this kind of moment of confusion, and then he said something like, he shouted at the band, pick it up from the second verse. Um, and they kind of, they got back into it because they're pros and they can do that. I have a recording of that because they had a thing where every show was recorded and you could order it on CD afterwards. And there's an example of something that I would have to fix if I was going to master it actually for a release rather than as a souvenir of that gig. But I do quite like those kind of... I'm always upset when people ask me to get rid of too many of those things. Like, I like leaving loads of chat in for live recordings as well because I feel like those are the things that actually make most of the performances unique. A lot of bands, they play stuff live and it's pretty much the same every time they do it you know the kind of extreme example that kind of is is uh, bono and the edge doing some kind of mock battle during the solo and one of their things and it's and it just drives me nuts because it's like it's it doesn't even look remotely spontaneous or you know you just know that they do it every night and <laughs> probably bored to tears um but yeah i like all the stuff that makes gigs kind of quirky and unique i think my favorite live album ever is do i want to say this on the podcast where everybody's listening yeah i do uh, bursting out by jethro tull um for this uh, 70s recording and it's just as a live recording it has so much personality to it because there are so many little things left in and bits of chat and, and it has some mistakes left in and i just love all of that stuff what about the documentary you're doing are you having to clean it all up and make them sound good Oh, there's a bit of that. There's not a there's not a ton of of performance. There's maybe one complete song, but there's lots of like in and out of different shows and stuff like that. It's kind of more transitional. I'm mixing studio and live with that, so it sounds as good as it can. Do you mean you're putting studio sound over the live footage, or yes, there's a little bit of that. Uh, that's that's a cheating that's as bad as Prince. <laughs> <laughs> there, well, yeah, it was a live studio recording that's that was already mastered, and I kind of finding where I can put that in. So, a live album. I haven't listened to a ton of live albums. But one that comes to mind as one that was good was Marilyn Manson's "The Last Tour on Earth." I think that one okay. was pretty good, and there's a good blend of talking to the audience and. The first, I don't know, hundred times I listened to it, I didn't notice that it was really like from different shows. But then after I got more into production and stuff, I started to notice where the edits were and things like that. Well, I guess for us, that's kind of nice. It's a deeply nerdy thing, and probably most music fans 
don't care. But yeah, I, I almost kind of enjoy that when you get to know a recording that well and start to notice these things. Same thing applies to that Prince film. When you look at it now, if you look at the Blu-ray, you can easily see the difference between the different bits of footage um, and figure out where different pieces have come from. It's not an audio thing, but... Yeah. Anyway, before we get back to the Maxim, I just want to address something I've mentioned several times during the show, which is this situation where you have no bass, um, or I guess some other instrument is either way lower in the mix than you would like or completely missing from the mix. What you can try to do is a kind of combination of all of the things that we've talked about. You can try some EQ to try and bring it up. Let's use the bass as an example, because that's one situation where maybe you'll be able to get a result. Because as I mentioned, if, if there's plenty of bass spill in other places, then there may be bass information there. It's just not what you would really ideally like. So you can try some automation to bring the bass out in sections where you need to, because typically quiet sections might be one of the points where it really gets lost. You can use some compression, especially multiband compression uh, or possibly dynamic EQ coupled with multiband compression or instead of multiband compression. And the, the point is you would compress that much harder, as we mentioned earlier on, than you might normally do just to try and get some of those frequencies back into the mix. And then you use either dynamic EQ or multiband compression to make sure that those boosts are tamed. The risk is that you've got super dynamic off mic bass coming in. If you just do a big bass boost with EQ all the way through, at some point it's going to overwhelm everything else. So you need to control that somehow. And the compression and dynamic EQ might be one way to achieve that. Mm. And then the final thing is that if you do have any stereo information in the image, it could be that you've actually got bass that's kind of spread out around the stereo image. So you don't have that nice central focus that you would like. So then, of course, you could try panning in the low end only. So an elliptical filter or multiband processing to bring in a specific frequency band of the bass to get some kind of focus in the center of the image. And that's something that you might want to do anyway, even in a recording that actually does have the bass recorded in. You could still have spill. Uh, you might have lots of low-end information in the overheads from the drums, for example, that might be panned hard left and right if they haven't already been filtered out as part of the mix. So again, you're kind of bringing everything together there. Compression, EQ, mid-side processing, multiband processing in terms of processing different frequency ranges in different ways to try and get a result that's satisfactory. And that leads into the maxim, which is kind of in two parts. One part I've already mentioned, which is feel free to do as much as you can. You know, if you have a challenging live recording to master, it's a problem case. It's It requires extraordinary measures. Don't be afraid to go above and beyond what you would normally consider as acceptable to try and achieve a satisfying end result. But the flip side of that is, at the end of the day, you want a satisfying representation of the live performance. And if all you have is a mono mic sitting on stage somewhere, or all you have is a mix that doesn't have any drum mics or bass mics in it, or all you have is the left channel, whatever it is, don't waste too much time trying to fix something that's unfixable. Do the best that you can, have fun with it, but at the end of the day, if the spirit of the performance, if the occasion is captured, that's what I think live recordings have that albums maybe don't have, is a sense of occasion, a sense of an event, a sense of personality, capturing a moment, even more than probably when you're recording in the studio, you know, it's a sense of what it was like to be there, a reminder of what it was like to be there. 
don't be tempted to go so far in your attempt to rescue the audio quality that you just lose what was great about it in the first place. If your attempts to re-EQ and recompress some bass into the sound end up being more distracting than just having the bass hardly there at all, go for having the bass hardly there at all. You know, find the sweet spot between trying to get the best out of what you have without losing the plot entirely and going over the top. Yeah. Which I guess is similar to what we're always doing in mastering, you know, do no harm, try and get the best out of the material whilst staying more or less invisible. It's kind of mastering in a nutshell, I guess. Mm -hmm. Cool. So that was exactly as chaotic as I thought it might be, but hopefully there's some stuff in there that people find interesting and useful. We can always return to the topic at a later occasion. John, thank you again for being my co-host and editing and mixing the show. Thank you very much. It was very fun. Everybody should go to reaperblog.net. John is working on some new tutorials. Now there's always a ton of great content there, even if you're not a Reaper user, which I'm not. Yeah, for example, I just posted a video on how I extended the tail end of a song in mastering uh, to cover up um, uh, something that was unwanted and without any stretching or anything like that. Works great. And that's a perfect example of the kind of thing you might have to do for a live gig, so it works really well for this show. It's almost as if we planned it. Cool. So thanks again to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. If you would like to uh, check out any of the links to other shows on the topics we talked about in this episode, please head over to themasteringshow.com. You can also sign up to the hot list there to get notifications of new shows and anything else that might be going on in Mastering Show world. There isn't really a mastering show world, but whatever. Find us on social media. Please head over to iTunes. Leave us a rating and review so that other people can find us. Uh, tell your friends about the show. It's also available on YouTube for people who like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, which I've never really understood. My name's Ian Shepard. Thanks for listening. So it's probably time for the mastering maxim. And now I've forgotten what it was I said it was going to be. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs>